and states across the country consider various forms of reparations, California has led the way in returning land to the descendants of the dispossessed. That includes African Americans and Native Americans. But as Stephanie Sai reports, the wealth, the community, and the opportunities lost are not easily recovered. The story of Bruce's Beach is a story about what could and should have been. Over 100 years ago, an industrious black woman in Southern California dreamt of owning a beach resort, but was refused whenever she tried. Willa Bruce eventually acquired land in Manhattan Beach, telling the Los Angeles Times in 1912, I own this land and I'm going to keep it. She and her husband Charles built a lodge, a place where black vacationers could enjoy a stay at the beach. You know, they were, they were having a beautiful time, and, and they built it to share. Yeah, and, you know, because whenever uh, people came to California, they wanted them to have somewhere to go. When I think about Charles and Willa Bruce, I think about entrepreneurs, I think about black excellence, I think about community. The reality is that Bruce's and their patrons were wealthy. A stately photo of the Bruce's on their wedding day, decked out in finery, foretold the makings of a power couple. The display of black success outraged the white neighbors and powers that be, says attorney George Fothery. In the light of harassment, intimidation, violence, um, their business just got more and more successful. And until the city of Manhattan Beach hatched a scheme to take the property via a racially motivated imminent the Bruce's dream was stolen, their property essentially seized for a pittance in compensation and only after they sued. This is it. I would say from right here to maybe this building here. Community this. activist Kavon Ward first learned of the Bruce's a few years after she moved to Manhattan yeah, Beach in 2017. You know, this country often tells us that we're black people, that we're lazy or we don't work hard enough or all we have to do is pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And here we are in the 19-teens and the 1920s, and this black couple did exactly that, only to have their land stolen and to die as cooks in someone else's kitchen when they had this whole beachfront resort here. Ward began campaigning for the land to be returned to the descendants of Willa and Charles Bruce during the summer of 2020. Less than two years later, she succeeded with the help of Fathery. For a century, our government at every level has enacted policies uh, to dispossess black people of the right to own property and create wealth. And what was so powerful about the return of the property of the Bruce family is we see a path forward to finally counter some of those false narratives. As unique and complex as the Bruce's Beach land back deal is, it does offer a path forward for other groups that might seek a return of land, not least of which are the original inhabitants of Los Angeles. Before Spanish missionaries arrived, the Tongva roamed a 4,000 square mile swath of Southern California called Tovangar, stretching from the coast to the mountains. We've been very systematically erased. We were enslaved. We've gone through about three waves of genocide. 27-year-old Samantha Morales Johnson recently became the land return coordinator for a Tongva Conservancy, a job she could only have dreamed of as a child. This land was returned, which I was not expecting in my lifetime, let alone my grandfather's. 
The one-acre property in Altadena was transferred last year by a Jewish landowner whose own family faced displacement and oppression. Johnson said the protests that erupted after the police killing of George Floyd raised the nation's consciousness. They think it made people more aware of all of the injustices that happen in America. When Johnson was growing up, council meetings and holiday parties were held in a borrowed space. I think it was a converted taco restaurant um, with like a little parking lot. There was no earth to even grow anything uh, in that concrete building. The Altadena property, which overlooks a scenic canyon, marks the first time in nearly 200 years that Tongva have legally owned land to use as they wish. So this is the, this is the white sage. This is the white sage. This is the only place where we can plant all native trees with full sovereignty and native plants with full sovereignty. Work is underway to remove the overgrown invasive species that were planted here. The old resilient oaks will remain. Eventually, the site will host tribal gatherings and offer educational programs. So the beautiful thing about this land is that there is a lot of hope for restoration, even underneath all of the mess that we have. So-called land-back agreements are still rare. Other recent examples include the purchase of nearly two square miles of land for $4.5 million by the Esalen tribe in Central California. And the city of Oakland recently returned five acres of a local park to the East Bay Ohlone tribe. In L.A., different Tongva groups are looking for more opportunities to reacquire land. It's not really just about the land, it's preserving what's left of our land. Long before the land back movement had gained traction, Angie Burns, now 86, fought to lease this two-acre property in West L.A. It was the early 1990s, and the Kuravangna Springs, which had been the site of a Tongva village, had fallen into neglect. A small museum on the land shows the journey. When I stood at that gate and saw this area, I was so upset. I couldn't believe it. That's, that's an archaeological and historical society. The Los Angeles Unified School District, which owns the land and built a high school next to the springs, agreed to lease the site for a dollar a year. This is the medicine garden, with ha which has many varieties of medicinal plants. The president of the Gabrielino Tongva Springs Foundation, Bob Ramirez, says the land is now abundant with native plants and pristine drinking water. Would you like to try some? Yes, I would like to try yeah. some. Now is the time for the land to be returned, Burns says. This is a sacred site. This is our place of worship. You have your temples, you have your churches, and what do we have? But Ramirez says the we is debatable. There may be other people that say, well, wait a minute, if you're going to get that land, well, what about me? So it becomes contentious, I think. How do you compensate this group and neglect somebody else? Is that fair? Is that just? What is fair and just is also in dispute at Bruce's Beach. Patricia Bruce Carter, a distant relative of Charles Bruce, was at the ceremony in 2022 when county officials returned the land to the Bruce's direct descendants. She thinks about what could have been if the land had remained in the family's hands all along. I, I'm sure at this time there would have been multiple, you know, hotels and and beachfront properties and, I mean, just, just, just living the life.
A lifeguard administration center and parking lot stand where the Bruce's resort did. The descendant's lawyer, George Fothery, says it would not be easy to develop. And so, less than a year after the land was returned, the four recipients of the land decided to sell it back to the county for nearly $20 million. As an attorney, um, my responsibility is to advocate in the interests of my clients. Um, as a citizen, as an, and as an African-American citizen, um, I think that's an important question. Um, you know, who are the benefactors of restitution? Who should be the benefactors of reparations? After her work getting the Bruce's their land back, this is not the outcome community activist Kavon Ward wanted. I wanted to see strong, young black entrepreneurs like Charles and Willa Bruce take up space here and be able to build and develop here like the Bruce's once were able to do. Community is what got the land back. So, yes, the family won, but the community did not. The work, Ward says, will continue. The reckoning, far from over. For the PB Responded to emergencies, but offered little more than basic first aid. In 1966, the National Academy of Sciences report documented the lack of proper emergency medical care. One area that exemplified that lack of care was the Hill District, the largest black neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. A former ambulance driver, Bill Hallen, teamed up with Dr. Peter Safar, an anesthesiologist known as the father of CPR, to create a private ambulance service to aid the residents in that neighborhood. Twenty black men were recruited from the Hill District to start the first paramedic team, which would come to be known as the Freedom House Ambulance Service. At a city council meeting, Safar presented data showing that of the over 4,000 patients Freedom House paramedics transported in their first year, less than 2% died before arriving at the hospital, a vast improvement over previous methods. Kevin Hazard, a former paramedic who also wrote a book about the ambulance service, told Verify that other medical programs took notice and replicated the service, creating the paramedic services that we see today. So we can verify, yes, the first paramedics in the U.S. were black men. The CDC estimates there are now more than 200,000 professional emergency medical technicians and paramedics in the U.S. With your Verify, I'm Channing Curtis. Reparations panel recommends possible millions for eligible black Californians. The California Reparations Task Force approved economic models for calculating reparations which could amount to hundreds of millions of dollars owed to eligible black residents to address past racial inequities. The models tell the state what is owed. The legislature would have to adopt the recommendations and decide how much to pay, task force members said. The state-appointed task force also unanimously voted to recommend California formally apologize for the perpetration of gross human rights violations and crimes against humanity and African slaves and their descendants. After 15 public hearings, two years of deliberations and input from more than 100 expert witnesses and the public, the task force on Saturday voted to finalize its proposals in an Oakland meeting. The nine-member panel has a deadline to submit it all to the legislature by July 1st. The historic effort could become a model for a national program of reparations, some observers have said. Representative Barbara Lee, a Democrat from Oakland, 
said at the beginning of the task force meeting that the United States must repair the damage done to black Americans. Reparations are not a luxury, but a human right long overdue for millions of Americans, she said. We are demanding that the government pay their tax. A bill by former State Assembly member Shirley Weber created the Reparations Task Force in 2020, in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd. The panel has since examined the history of slavery and racism in the state and developed detailed plans for how the state can begin to undo certain types of racial harm, such as housing discrimination, mass incarceration, devaluation of black-owned businesses, the unjust taking of property and unequal access to health care. The recommendations include policy changes and financial payouts. The task force's final report and documents, numbering thousands of pages, don't contain an overall price tag for reparations. They do include ways the state could calculate how much money eligible African Americans in California have lost since the state's founding in 1850. The loss calculations vary depending on type of racial harm and how long a person has lived in California. For instance, the loss estimates are $2,300 per person per year of residence for the over-policing of black communities, and they are $77,000 total per person, regardless of length of residence, for black-owned business losses and devaluations over the years. The task force voted in March 2022 that African-American descendants from enslaved Americans were eligible, but other black residents, such as more recent immigrants, are not. Nearly 80% of California's 2.6 million black residents would be eligible, said William Darity, an economist who consulted with the task force. Task force members said elderly people should have priority for payment. CalMatters created an interactive tool for calculating how much a person is owed, using formulas in the task force's final reports and how long a person lived in California during the periods of racial harm. For instance, a 19-year-old who moved to California in 2018 would be owed at least $149,799 based on the calculations, but a 71-year-old who has lived in California all their life could be owed about $1.2 million. On the other hand, an eligible 28-year-old Californian who moved out of state in 2012 and just moved back could be due around $348,507, according to the calculator. Hundreds of millions of dollars. If all of the eligible African-American residents lived in the state only two years, it could mean hundreds of millions of dollars in potential reparations. Eligible black residents should not expect cash payments anytime soon. The state legislature and Governor Gavin Newsom will decide on reparations. It's unclear what they will do with the task force recommendations. The task force was not told to identify funding sources. Assemblymember Reggie Jones-Sawyer, a task force member and Democrat from Los Angeles, stressed that the process will take time giving the impression that funds will become readily available, or that cash payments are recommended by the task force to rectify marginalization caused by generations of reckless policies and laws, is not focusing on the real work of the task force or the report itself, he said in an interview Sunday. There is a process by which the legislature will look at and discuss all recommendations, and that will take some time. Task force members voted to recommend the legislature consider down payments of varying amounts to eligible African-American residents, saying direct cash payments are part of other reparations programs around the world. The initial down payment is the beginning of a process of addressing historical injustices, not the end of it, the task force report states. The task force also is recommending a variety of policy changes to counteract discrimination. For example, the task force has recommended the state and the practice of forced labor in prisons and adopt a K-12 black studies curriculum. Freedmen's Bureau The group finalized plans to establish a centralized state agency similar to the National Freedmen's Bureau, a federal agency created in 1865 to assist previously enslaved black people. The state agency would provide oversight and implement the task force's proposals. 
the agency will be doing the work that we weren't able to finish in two years, said Camilla Moore, chairperson of the task force. Saturday's meeting was one of the more rowdy hearings by the task force. It included a brief shouting match between a regular meeting attendee and Amos Brown, the task force's vice chairperson. Also, the California Highway Patrol escorted a disruptive group out of Lycee Hall at Mills College, where the meeting was held. During this nearly final task force meeting, debate continued over who is eligible for reparations. Some task force members also voiced concerns that the legislature might not honor the task force's vote to consider lineage for eligibility. By a 5-4 vote last year, the task force narrowly defined an eligible person as an individual being an African-American descendant of a chattel enslaved person or the descendant of a free black person living in the U.S. prior to the end of the 19th century. That vote was contentious and emotional. Reparations vote. The task force voted 6-3 to three Saturday to approve the recommendations for financial compensation. The three members who voted against it did so after changes they wanted failed. Moore on Saturday made several attempts to further codify the lineage-based definition in the task force's final reports by adding a new chapter. That failed to garner majority support from the rest of the task force. When Moore requested a section of the final report move from one part to another, members of the Department of Justice staff who put the report together balked, saying the panel would have to rescind its prior vote and convene an additional meeting to redo the report structure. Monica Montgomery staff a task force member and San Diego City Council member, disagreed with them. But a majority of the task force went on to approve the final documents as presented with slight tweaks. Speaking on Sunday in Twitter spaces, Moore said that meeting procedure can be weaponized. She declined to say more publicly about issues from the meeting. Stay tuned for the tell-all book, though, she joked. The task force tentatively set its final meeting for June 29th in Sacramento. Members said they planned to hand the documents to members of legislature. Oh, <laughs>